Part three of Works of Sallust. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Works of Gaius Salustius Crispus. Translated by Alfred W. Pollard. Catiline Conspiracy. Part one. Every man who is anxious to excel the lower animals, should strive with all his power not to pass his life in obscurity like the brute beasts whom nature has made the groveling slaves of their belly. Now our whole ability resides jointly in our mind and body. In the case of the mind, it is its power of guidance. In the case of the body, it's obedient service that we rather use, sharing the former faculty with the gods, the latter with the brute creation. This being so, I think right to seek repute by my powers rather of intellect than of strength, and since the very life which we enjoy is short, to make the memory of us as abiding as may be. The glory of wealth and beauty is fleeting and frail, but personal merit is held in eternal honor. Now it was long hotly contested among men whether military success was more advanced by mental ability or by bodily strength. For what we need is deliberation before we begin, and after deliberation, then, well-timed action. Either, of itself, is deficient, and lacks the other's help. Thus at the outset, those who were called kings, for that was the first title of dominion known on earth, differed from each other, some using their intellect, others their bodily powers. For even, as late as this men's lives were passed in freedom from avarice, and each was contented with his own possessions. After Cyrus, however, in Asia, and the Lacedaemonians and Athenians in Greece, began the subjugation of towns and nations, and, convinced that the greatest glory was to be found in the greatest empire, held their lust for dominion a fair pretext for war. Then at last, by the actual test of results, it was proved that it was intellect which was most effective in war. Were then, the genius of kings and commanders as potent in peace as in war, there would be more smoothness and consistency in human affairs, nor would you see power tossed from hand to hand, and the whole world subject to change and confusion. For empire is easily retained by the very devices by which it is originally acquired. When diligence, however, has been superseded by sloth, arid self-restraint and moderation by lustfulness and pride, a change of fortune accompanies that of character and thus empire is continually being transferred to the most capable from those who are less so. Whether they be farmers, sailors, or builders, men find that everything is obedient to merit. Many, however, the slaves of gluttony and sloth, without learning or cultivation, have passed their life as though it were a journey in a foreign land, and thus, in defiance of nature, have actually found their body a pleasure, and their real vital powers a burden. Of these, for my own part, I hold the life and death to be alike, since of neither there is any record. To me, indeed, the only man who really seems to live and enjoy his vital powers is he who, in devotion to some task, seeks the fame of a brilliant exploit or virtuous accomplishment. Where the field is so wide, nature points out different paths to different persons. It is a fine thing to serve the state by action, nor is eloquence without its glory. Men may become illustrious alike in peace and war, and many by their own acts, many by their record of the acts of others, win applause. 
the glory which attends the doer and the recorder of brave deeds is certainly by no means equal for my own part however i count historical narration as one of the hardest of tasks in the first place a full equivalent has to be found in words for the deeds narrated and in the second the historians censures of crimes are by many thought to be the utterances of ill-will and envy while his record of the high virtue and glory of the good tranquilly accepted so long as it deals with what the reader deems to be easily performable so soon as it passes beyond this is disbelieved as mere invention as regards myself my inclination originally led me like many others while still a youth into public life there i found many things against me modesty temperance and virtue had departed and hardihood corruption and avarice were flourishing in their stead my mind a stranger to bad acquirements contemned these qualities nevertheless with the weakness of my age i was kept amid this sea of vice by perverse ambition i presented a contrast to the evil characters of my fellows none the less i was tormented by the same craving for the honours of office and the same sensitiveness to popularity and unpopularity as the rest at last after many miseries and perils my mind was at peace and i determined to pass the remainder of my days at a distance from public affairs it was not however my plan to waste this honourable leisure in idleness and sloth nor yet to spend my life in devotion to such slavish tastes as agriculture or hunting i returned to the studies i had once begun from which my unhappy ambition had held me back and determined to narrate the history of the roman people in separate essays wherever it seemed worthy of record i was the more inclined to this by the fact that my mind was free alike from the hopes and fears of the political partisan i am about therefore with the utmost truth i can briefly to relate the history of the conspiracy of catiline for i account this affair as in the highest degree memorable for the novelty both of the crime itself and of the danger it involved before i begin my history a few points concerning this man's character must be made clear lucius catalina was of noble birth of great mental and bodily vigour but of an evil and depraved disposition from his youth he had delighted in domestic war murder rapine and civil discord and among these he had passed his early manhood his body could bear privation cold and sleeplessness to an incredible extent his mind was bold crafty and versatile skilful alike to feign or conceal whatever he chose as covetous as prodigal his desires knew no bounds not deficient in eloquence he had little solid wisdom the aims of his monstrous mind were always immoderate incredible and placed too high this man after the tyranny of lucius sulla had been possessed by an overwhelming passion to control the state nor so long as he gained supreme power for himself did he attach any weight to the means by which he should attain it his headstrong spirit was daily spurred more and more by his want of means and his consciousness of his crimes each increased by the qualities i have named besides this he was urged on by the corruption of a society plagued at once by those worst and opposite evils luxury and avarice since occasion has reminded me of the public morality 
I seem called upon by my subject to go back and briefly explain the civil and military customs of our ancestors, their mode of administering the state, the size at which they left it, and how its beauty and nobility were gradually exchanged for vileness and crime. The city of Rome, according to tradition, was originally founded and inhabited by Trojans, who, with Aeneas, their leader, were wandering about as exiles with no settled home. These were aided by Aborigines, a wild race who lived free and unshackled, without laws and without government. It passes belief to tell with what ease these two peoples of unlike race and different language, and each with their own way of life, coalesced after they came within one stronghold. After, however, their state, improved in population, customs, and territory, seemed to have gained some degree of strength and prosperity, as is usual in mortal affairs, their wealth gave rise to ill will. The neighboring kings and peoples assailed them. Few of their friends came to their aid, and the rest, panic-stricken, held aloof from the danger. The Romans, however, alike active at home and in the field, made their preparations in all haste. With mutual exhortations they advanced against the enemy, and shielded with their arms their freedom, country, and kin. When their courage had repelled their own danger, they brought help to their friends and allies, and won themselves friendships by their greater readiness to give than to receive a service. Their government was according to law, and with the name of royalty. Chosen men, of bodies enfeebled by age, but of characters strong in wisdom, formed the council of the state. These, either from their age or from a resemblance in their duties, were called fathers. The royal power, which had originally conduced to the maintenance of liberty and the increase of the state, was turned at last into mere arrogance and tyranny. They then changed their constitutions and instituted yearly magistracies and pair of magistrates, thinking, by this way, men's minds would be least able to wax wanton by license. It was at this conjuncture that individuals began more to distinguish themselves and to display their talents with greater readiness. By kings, the good are more liable to be suspected than the bad, and cause for alarm is always found in the merit of others. As soon, then, as the state had gained its freedom, it is incredible to relate what progress it quickly made. So great was the thirst for glory that had ensued. Now, for the first time, the young men, as soon as they were of age for service, learnt warfare by the experience of hard labor in camp. Handsome arms and warlike steeds now formed their pleasures, in preference to women and wine. To men like these no toil was unwanted, no ground rugged or steep, no foe in arms an object of fear. Their courage had subdued all things. But their greatest contests for glory were with one another. Each was eager to strike the foe, to scale the wall, and to be seen so engaged. This they counted wealth, this as good repute and the highest birth. Greedy for fame, they were liberal of money, and wished that their glory might be unbounded, and their wealth honorably won. I could tell of places in which a small Roman force routed huge bodies of the enemy, and of towns naturally strong taken by assault, were it not that this would be too wide a digression. Fortune, however, is truly everywhere paramount, 
and she makes known or obscures every event according to her own whim, rather than its real value. The performances of the Athenians, as I esteemed them, were sufficiently noble and magnificent, and yet somewhat less than fame reports. At Athens, however, there flourished historians of genius, and consequently, throughout the world, the exploits of the Athenians are esteemed as of the highest order. Thus the merits of men of action are valued in proportion to the capability of men of genius to extol them in words. Of these the Roman people have never had any great abundance. Among them the most capable men were always the most occupied. No one exercised his mind apart from his body, and the best men preferred action to narration, and to have their own services praised by others, rather than themselves to be another's historian. Thus, as I have said, virtue was practiced both at home and on the field. There was the utmost concord and the least possible avarice. The right and the good obtained among them, not so much by law as by nature. Strife, discord, and enmity they carried on with their foes. Citizens contended with citizens only in virtue. In their offerings to the gods they were magnificent, in their domestic expenses sparing, to their friends loyal. Their own and their country's interests they guarded by these two devices, hardihood in war and generous treatment when peace had ensued. Of this I can adduce a striking proof. In war, punishment was more often inflicted on those who had fought the enemy contrary to orders, or who had too slowly obeyed the signal of recall from battle than on those who had dared to desert the standard or give way when hard-pressed. In peace they governed rather by kindness than by fear, and when they had received an injury preferred rather to pardon than abjudge it. Thus by diligence and fair dealing the state was advanced. Great kings were conquered in war, wild races and vast peoples subdued by force. Carthage, the rival of the Roman Empire, perished root and branch, sea and land everywhere lay open before us, when at last fortune began to turn cruel and throw everything into confusion. Those who had lightly borne toils and dangers, doubtful fortunes and desperate straits, found the leisure and wealth elsewhere, so coveted a pitiful burden. At first the lust of money increased, then that of power, and these, it may be said, were the sources of every evil. Avarice subverted loyalty, uprightness, and every other good quality, and in their stead taught men to be proud and cruel, to neglect the gods, and to hold all things venal. Ambition compelled many to become deceitful. They had one thought buried in their breast, another ready on their tongue. Their friendships and enmities they valued not at their real worth, but at the advantage they could bring, and they maintained the look rather than the nature of honest men. These evils at first grew gradually, and were occasionally punished. Later, when the contagion advanced like some plague, the state was revolutionized, and the government, from being one of the justest and best, became cruel and unbearable. At first it was not so. Much avarice, as ambition, which spurred men's minds, a vice indeed, but one akin to virtue. For glory, distinction, and power in the state are equally desired by good and bad. Though the first strives to reach his goal by the path of honor, the second, in the lack of honest arts, uses the weapons of falsehood and deceit. Avarice, on the other hand, implies a zeal for money, an object for which no philosopher ever yearned. 
tainting the body and the mind of the strong, it weakens them as by some deadly poison. It is always boundless, always insatiable. Plenty and want alike fail to lessen it. After Lucius Sulla had seized the government by force of arms and made a bad end to a good beginning, robbery and plunder became universal. One coveted a house, another an estate. The victors knew neither limit nor sobriety, and the citizens became the object of vile and cruel outrage. To make matters worse, Sulla, to secure the loyalty of the army he had led in Asia, had treated it, in defiance of ancient usage, in a lavish and far too liberal manner. Pleasant and voluptuous quarters, while at peace, had easily enervated the hardy spirit of his men. It was in Asia that a Roman army first gained habits of lustfulness and intemperance, learned to admire statues, paintings, and plate, stole them from their private or public owners, plundered shrines, and polluted everything, whether sacred or common. Soldiers like these, when they gained a victory, stripped their victims bare, for even the wise have their temper tried by prosperity, much less could men of this abandoned character use their success with moderation. Riches became a means of distinction and glory. Power and influence followed their possession. As a result, the edge of virtue was dulled. Poverty was accounted a disgrace, and uprightfulness a kind of ill nature. Riches made the youth a prey to luxury, avarice and pride. At once grasping and prodigal, they valued lightly their own property, while they coveted that of others. All modesty and purity, alike things human and things divine, everything in short, was despised and disregarded. To one acquainted with mansions and villas built on the scale of towns, it is worth while to visit the temples erected to our ancestors, the most God-fearing of men. They indeed decorated the shrines of the gods with piety, and their own homes with glory, while they deprived their conquered enemies of nothing save the power of doing them harm. But in this generation the most worthless of men, in the depth of their wickedness, have deprived our allies of everything which those brave men in the hour of victory had left them, as if the one and only use of empire were to inflict harm. Why should I tell of things which no one who has not seen them could believe, of how often private individuals have leveled mountains and built over seas? Such men seem to me to have trifled with their riches in the haste with which they ignobly abused what they might have honorably enjoyed. But the passion for defilement, gluttony, and all kinds of indulgence had kept pace with that for wealth. Each sex alike trampled on their modesty. Sea and land were ransacked to supply the table. Men went to rest before they felt a desire for sleep. They did not wait for hunger or thirst, cold or weariness, but anticipated them by luxurious expedients. Such a life, when means had failed, spurred youth into crime. Their minds, tainted with bad accomplishments, could not endure to be deprived of their sensual pleasures, and they abandoned themselves with all the more recklessness to every kind, both of gain and expense. End of Catiline Conspiracy, Part 1